Now we're about to discuss beauty. And John Legend actually is in the right space here. Here he is. You fix your makeup just so. Guess you don't know that you're beautiful. Try on every dress that you own. You were fine in my eyes a half hour ago. And if your mirror won't make it any clearer, I'll be the one to let you know. Bless him. Uh, David Robson's been writing about people with asymmetrical faces. And that is nearly all of us. Only 2% of people have symmetrical faces. But many people, uh, as John Legend's alluding to, try and get into that top percentile with cosmetics and surgery because we're looked at more and more. This is now the age, after all, where TikTok and Instagram likes are counted up as big stars walk the red carpet at events like the Grammys. And I received an email telling me that this year Taylor Swift had the highest red carpet count at the Grammys ahead of Olivia Rodrigo, Miley Cyrus and Billie Irish. Imagine being assessed live on social media as you walk to work. We speak to David Robson regularly on Sunday morning. He's a neuroscience writer and the author of The Intelligence Trap about how individuals and organisations can improve their decision-making. The Seven Primes of Life, Why Each Decade Comes With Its Own Superpowers, and The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Future Life. David, welcome back. Lovely to talk to you again. Yeah, lovely to speak to you too. Before we start, I am someone who is not photogenic, believe it or not, David. Um, Does being photogenic correspond with symmetry in the face, do you think? Well, I mean, this is what we've always been led to believe. Um, There was this idea that the kind of perfect face would always be highly symmetrical. And there was even this evolutionary theory that we would find that we were kind of primed to uh, find symmetrical faces more attractive because they reflected something important about our health. Yeah, that's right. And actually the reverse applies. Sometimes people are incredibly photogenic and you think they've got that kind of perfect face, but the reality of meeting them doesn't match that. Not that it matters. I'm not saying it matters, but it, it isn't the same. Yeah, meeting someone for the face-to-face, it can often be quite an uncanny experience when you've only seen them online. <laughs> uncanny, yeah. yes. And the famously beautiful people, you know, we see lauded for their good looks, Brad Pitt and George Clooney and Liam Hensworth and Margot Robbie, Kim Kardashian, people like that. They, they don't actually have symmetry either, do they? No, I don't think so. I mean, I did actually see a study showing that, you know, even the top supermodels, um, you know, do not have perfectly symmetrical faces. And, you know, some of that is just genes, um, but also people just pull their faces in asymmetrical expressions. And, you know, they still look really gorgeous, even if they have like a crooked smile or, you know, if one eye is slightly more open than the other. So, um, you know, anecdotally, I think we all know that actually symmetry maybe isn't as important as we've been led to believe. But I think what you know, is interesting about the new sciences that they've really debunked that um, right down to kind of quite serious evidence too. People strive for it though, don't they? I'm told, I was talking about this in the newsroom and I'm told there's an app 
that somehow shifts your face back and forth so you can tell where, <laughs> where you're lopsided. I mean, I wouldn't have a clue except, you know, for some people whose faces are obviously uh, skewed out of whack and maybe they make a living sometimes out of that because they're unusual. I, I, it is hard to tell with symmetry, isn't it? It is, and I think like one of the times when we, because we've grown accustomed to seeing the reflection of our face being a certain way, um, you know, we don't notice it so much. But then I think that's partly why we find that we often don't really like the photos of ourselves. And that's because the photos obviously haven't been reflected. So any slight asymmetries we do have in our face um, are appearing on the opposite side of the face to the one we're expecting from having processed our, our reflection in the mirror. Um, so I often find that when I, I look at photos of myself, that I just feel my face looks, suddenly it does look skew whiff in a way I'm not used to. Well, when we're looking in the mirror, what skew whiffness should we look for? Because I don't really know how to find much asymmetry or symmetry, if you know what I mean. I'm an ignoramus. So what would sh what should we look for? Well, I mean, I think the things that most people notice is that their nose might be, you know, pointing at a slight angle, so left or right. Um, you know, the slope of the nose can be a bit skew with. Um, it could be that one eye is just a tiny bit higher than the other one, or one eye is slightly bigger than the other. You might, you know, it's less common with younger people, but as you get older, you might notice that the creases and wrinkles on your face um, are not perfectly symmetrical either. But, you know, there's no need for us to feel bad about them. No. But one of the reasons we're talking about this is that people do see their asymmetry and they spend big, big dollars trying to correct it sometimes. And you're basically saying that's useless, aren't you? I am. And, you know, it's something that even I've been a little bit tempted to do myself, like my... You know, nose is slightly crooked, and especially when I was younger, I often wondered about, um, you know, paying for rhinoplasty. And actually, I think what often happens with people is that, you know, once they get one thing corrected, um, their kind of anxieties just switch to another feature. So it can become this kind of never-ending journey for perfection. Um, and then the scientific research on facial symmetry kind of shows that actually, you know, most people don't really care very much about um, how symmetrical a face is. And there have been lots of studies that have tried to, to look at this, you know, in a really robust way. You find that actually there just isn't much difference in, the, uh, in people's ratings of those faces, uh, depending on how mathematically symmetrical they are. It just doesn't seem to matter that much. I'd go so far as to say, that I've met people who probably don't like the way they look in terms of asymmetry and who aren't that confident about presenting that to the world. But in fact, the rest of the world finds it often quite startlingly attractive or completely doesn't notice and personality makes up for the rest. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think beauty is so subjective. And again, the research shows that you, there are some faces that like might appeal to more people but um within a population so statistically they might be deemed more attractive but actually you do find that often there's someone for everyone and you know uh opinions can just vary so widely um so i find that very encouraging and you know anecdotally you hear about people like Kira knightley for example had said that she faced a lot of insecurities about the way she looked and that partly came from hollywood producers who would you know, 
She said it was basically there wasn't a part of her body that hadn't been criticised by someone in the film industry at some point. Um, And yet I think for most people, you know, she's a very attractive woman who's very intelligent, has a great, you know, personality as well and is very talented. And, you know, but we let these criticisms kind of play on our minds when actually they, you know, for most people, they really don't matter. And then I think when we're talking about ourselves, you know, and we, if we have very strong feelings of um, self-doubt or anxiety, you know, I really think that uh, the mind can kind of exaggerate these small imperfections as we see them into something that's far more important than it really is. Um, you know, the truth is other people will see you very differently from the way you see yourself. Yeah, which is a, a core truth. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And our brains are asymmetrical too. Yes, and this is really, um, really important for the way the brain functions. And, um, you know, we all know that, say, um, we're right or left-handed. Well, almost everyone is either right or left-handed. One hand is dominant. We use it for more actions. Um, You know, and it doesn't end there, actually. So what you often have a dominant eye, so one eye will naturally be used for kind of more for more complex tasks than the other eye. Um, You can tell this just if you uh, go to look through a keyhole, uh, chances are you'll always use either your left or your right eye. It's just this kind of instinctual thing you might not even notice. Um, And the same goes for our ears. One ear is often a little bit more sensitive than the other. Um, And, you know, it's kind of um, surprising that it would be the case. So each of the, the left and right side of our bodies are connected to the opposite hemispheres of the brain so my right hand is connected to my left hemisphere and vice versa um and you'd wonder well why is that the case and why isn't it better to uh, have you know both hands being equally dominant um when you're learning to write and learning that fine control that you need for drawing or for manipulating tools you know all of those things if you used each hand equally you'd be splitting the time that you're spending training the brain networks between the left and the right hemisphere. So you might spend 20 hours on the task using first the left hand and then the right hand. And that would, um, you know, 10 hours of that would go to training the left hemisphere, 10 hours would go to training the right. Um, That's not really the most efficient way of learning. If you only use one hand, you have... 20 hours of practice all going to training the same hemisphere so putting all that work into refining the neural networks of just that one hemisphere that one brain region and there's an advantage to doing that because the more you train those specific neural networks the faster they will adapt and the the more adept you'll become so it actually makes sense for us to specialize for one side of our body over the other because it trains those neural networks more quickly. Um, so it's simply a matter of, of education, really, but the reason that we, we do tend to be left or right-handed, left or right-eyed, all of these things. Yeah, that's really interesting. I read somewhere that to develop my left-handed abilities, I should start doing things with my left hand, brushing my teeth, for example. So that's futile. You're saying basically, you know, give up. I did give up, actually, very quickly, but you, you say it's no use. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think if you had a real reason to do that, like say you were uh, became paralysed in your right hand, sure. then actually the brain is very plastic. So 
you know, your brain could probably adapt and you would learn to be much more dexterous with your left hand. But I don't think there's any advantage to doing that, you know, unless there's a real need for you to use the the opposite hand. Um, you know, we evolved this way for a good reason and actually it works very efficiently. How do you tell if you're left-eyed or right-eyed? So you put your arms out in front of you and make a triangle with your thumbs and forefingers. And then with both eyes open, you center that triangle around a distant object. So from where I'm looking, it might be the kind of lamp at the other side of the room. Um, Then you close your left eye. And if the object barely moves, that means that your right eye is dominant. Um, But if the object is no longer framed, so it seems to have moved a lot, then the left eye is the dominant eye. And it's quite fun to do. Thank you. Exactly. (laughs) The good genes hypothesis. You touched on this at the start. It's interesting because in Wikipedia, uh, research indicates facial symmetry is correlated with openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, Uh. a lack of neuroticism. You know, uh, so you, you wouldn't agree with all that. That's the old research I'm assuming. But Adler, Adler did say, was it Adler? He did say anatomy is destiny. And I think that's right. Uh, it's nothing to do with symmetry or asymmetry, really. But I think it's right, don't you? Well, you know, I think sometimes there might be reverse causality here. Um, and I think it could actually be that we're often treated differently because of our cultural assumptions about, you know, the way people look and what that says about that person. And there's this phenomenon in uh, psychology called the halo effect, um, which is generally, um, if you have one good trait, we assume that that might reflect other kind of traits as well. It's like you have this kind of halo of goodness around you. And when it comes to kind of what people find attractive, um, if someone's beautiful, we assume that they are morally pure um conscientious and more intelligent you know people who are uh kind of on average considered to be better looking sometimes do uh earn more money just because they've kind of ridden through life with this uh with this kind of privilege yes, um and we've all met and them so <laughs> right exactly i think there's this uh character in the sitcom the american sitcom 30 rock played by um John Hamm, who is absolutely hopeless at everything he does. Like he's trained as a doctor but doesn't know the Heimlich uh, maneuver, you know. <laughs> he he's loves cooking but he's terrible. But no one tells him that because um because they're so in love with him because he's so good looking. <laughs> That's like a comic exaggeration of what I think is quite an accepted psychological phenomenon. Um but it's one of these things that, you know, if it is cultural, I think we can challenge that, actually. I think teachers can try to question their biases, for example, in schools. Employees can do that. They might even try, you know, uh, kind of blinded interviews where they um, don't see the candidates before ah, um, kind of assigning, you know, marks to their kind of qualifications, all of that kind of thing. So, um, you know, there's definitely ways around this. Um, I've heard it called facism. Um, this kind of prejudice that we ah. have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's an interesting proposition. You know, the more you read about the great men and so-called great men and women of the world and those halos of goodness, you realise how often the halos have slipped, you know, even in the ones we mm. most revere. It's fascinating. So I, when you said that, I thought Absolutely. Oh. With respect 
this is a tiny little aside, really. With respect, I'm quoting, I think, again from Wikipedia uh, for the third time, with respect to trustworthiness, it has been found that facial muscles become imbalanced when lying. I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine picking that up. You know, you'd say to somebody, oh, you've gone all lopsided. I, I, I find it hard to believe that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't come across that research, but I would be quite sceptical. Police forces across the world have tried to work out whether there are these um, non-verbal cues that signal whether someone's telling the truth or lying. And actually, they're very, very inaccurate, um, to the point that actually you'd pretty much do better to just flip a coin (laughs) than to rely on someone's judgment of their non-verbal body language. It's tales. You're not telling us the whole truth. Uh, just, <laughs> just quickly, you've written a piece for the BBC on the best way to stop bullying, David, especially in classrooms. And your piece is very interesting on the ongoing effects of bullying. You refer to, for example, to the levels of inflammation still in the blood at age 45. How do they know that's the result of previous, often childhood trauma? Yes. So I think, you know, it's always a little tricky to kind of work out causality in these um, uh, in these correlational studies. I mean, so the studies are conducted, you know, they're longitudinal studies. They'll have tracked these people for years and then decades. Um, so they will have records of, you know, who suffered from some kind of trauma as a child, you know, who was bullied more. Um, and then they'll have looked at these outcomes every few years with um, follow up questionnaires. And there does seem to be this kind of link. And so the assumption here is that actually, if you are carrying that trauma from your childhood, and if that trauma is potentially still affecting your behaviour today, so it could be that because you've got that traumatic past, you're more likely to feel, um, to kind of see hostility around you, because it's the kind of narrative that you've learnt, um, that you um, that you might actually, you know, be constantly reminded of what had gone on in the past, that, you know, that's still going to be triggering this stress response and that the effects can kind of linger, add up even over time. And and this is serious because um, inflammation is linked to lots of different kinds of diseases. So um, it's linked to things like cardiovascular disease, but also mental health issues. So things like depression seem for some people to be linked to higher levels of bodily inflammation. So if people are kind of being triggered into this state as a young child and are carrying that through their life, it's really something that we need to to combat um, uh, more forcefully within our societies. You never forget even regulation bullying. Um, I went to a boys' school. And, you know, and and blaming your own weakness for being bullied is probably half of that. I mean, even if you fought back when uh, when you're in a scrap, you know, you haven't sat in a corner with your hands over your head. I've seen uh, bullied boys and girls from primary school, actually, and I, I still remember their names, not many of them, but I wonder how their lives turned out. But obviously it made a big impression on me just looking at them. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think like we... Um, you know, small children still can have quite a lot of empathy for the people around them. And, you know, I think there is this kind of collateral damage of bullying that um, even if you're not the direct victim, you can, even as a bystander, you know that it's not a kind of safe environment. You're being encouraged to kind of hide bits of your personality or to go along with games that you didn't want to do. You're feeling coerced, you know, 
so it's um i'm not surprised that it, it does kind of affect you in those ways and i think it is a common experience for lots of people that a hostile environment can be toxic even if you're not the direct um, recipient of that bullying. Yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, the initiative that you mention on the BBC uh, site, the initiative tried in the US, seemed effective. What was it? Yeah, so, I mean, this, I think, like, it's what all schools should be doing, really. So the idea of this initiative, which has been tested in you know, um, quite a few different school districts is to to make sure that everyone within the institution is on board. So all the teachers have a responsibility to um, be aware of bullying, to be on the lookout um, for instances and to dish out punishments uh, when it's necessary and to provide support to the victims um, when they need it. Um, also, not just teachers, but caretakers, uh, people in the canteen, um, you know, the whole kind of school community. And then you also have um, regular lessons within, you know, the school week um, where children are encouraged to talk about bullying, about the effects it might have on them, about instances where they might have observed bullying in the past, about how they can help the victims more. And it seems very effective. Yeah, well, that seems like something you proclaim, you know, in a school, for example, and don't actually carry out, if you know what I mean. So obviously, assiduously, they do carry it out. That's the trick. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, I'm sure my school, if you have spoken to the headmaster, would have said, um, I'm sure he would have said, you know, um, we take bullying very seriously. But I, you know, I knew from my experience as a pupil that they didn't really. You might have one assembly once a year, once every two years that kind of attempts to tackle the problem, but that's not enough. It really has to be uh, continued attention. And people who want to know the details of that can read it on the BBC website, but I thought it was worth mentioning while we talked about asymmetry as well. David Robson has been with us. David, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm always grateful for you giving us your time. Uh, You too. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much.